Good morning and thank you for joining us here at Prodigal for our finale of our big reputation sermon series. Joining us is Dr. Mark Baker. For those of you who don't know, he is an accomplished professor, author, and theologian. He is one of the leading scholars on the atonement and the book of Galatians. He's a former missionary in Honduras for quite some time and has remained tethered to real life and real life change in his ministry in the local church and in leading a weekly Bible study at the county jail. Your last two books have the word judgmentalism in the title and would love to hear from you because this is the topic we are discussing today here at Prodigal. So in what ways have you seen judgmentalism in the local church? Well, I think, yeah, two things I like to say there is one is judgmental about lots of things in the church. So I think there, there's a tendency to think of judgmentalness as those people that have a lot of rules or something. Yeah. But in reality, judgmentalism is pretty widespread and it's common in both you know, more conservative churches, more progressive, more liberal. Um, so just an example, uh, okay. short stories. I was involved in a church that was, this was in Honduras, and we were quite proud that we had left our legalism behind. You know, those people who don't go to movies, who don't do this, all those rules. But, but we were so judgmental about not being judgmental. And so I think that captures it. Judgmentalism widespread in many churches. So uh, what ways do you see judgmentalism in so common in the local church? Well, so I think the reason it's so common, one is society, I mean, status is how do we get status? The, the default thing in society is for me to be up, others have to be down. So us, them, they're down, we're up. It's, it's all around us. Um, then, then also there's this sense of you know, unity. So for a church to have a sense of unity, a common thing to do is to draw a line and say, this is who we are, we're on this side of the line, this is where we are, and those other people. And, and that's a way, and, it, and yeah. Now, the other thing I think very important I wanna say, and I wanna say, you know, with compassion, I don't wanna be up here like, oh, you judgmental people. Yeah. Because this, um, things that we're usually judgmental on are things we think are important. Like, you we know, value them. The, they're, so they're, they're beliefs, actions, convictions that are important to us. So. I want to be yeah compassionate towards people who are judgmental. It's understandable you're judgmental because these are things that feel important. Correct. So how how do you hold that as something that you are valuing and is important to you, but not create such a, a big line that between is a you great and question. Them? How to? So I think yeah Jesus both shows an alternative and enables an alternative. So what does Jesus do? And, and here, compare the Pharisees and Jesus. So the Pharisees were line drawers, and they had things that they were passionate about. This is important. Jesus had things that he thought was important as well, but Jesus led with acceptance and grace versus the Pharisees leading with uh, shaming accusation. And so Jesus welcomes people to the table through grace. Um, and so Jesus calls us. The other thing, Jesus was a person of status, but he didn't put others down to get his status. So that shows us. Now, the beautiful thing though with Jesus is it's not just about us saying, okay, be like Jesus. Jesus enables us to be different, to let this status grasping go because we are loved by God. 
So in Jesus's loving embrace, my identity is in Jesus. I'm welcome to the table. I don't have to worry about grasping for that identity. So mm -hmm. Jesus shows the way, enables the way. And then on transformation, I think it's just a, it's an opposite of the Pharisees. They threaten exclusion. Jesus leads with grace. But Jesus takes things seriously still. And so this is where, in my book on Center Set Church, rather than that line drawing you mentioned, Jesus looks at direction. And he asks, which direction is this person hearing, heading? And we as a church can do the same thing. Yeah. Rather than drawing a line and being judgmental, which side of the line you're on, we can ask, which direction are you heading? Very true. You said something that stuck out to me, um, that identity piece. And so where that identity is found ultimately would change that conversation or change how you're feeling if your identity is found in what side of line you're yes. on or in that you are loved and that they are equally as yes. beloved and loved. And I think and that's, that's a really sad, tragic thing in churches is that we foment, we increase this sense of putting identity in something other than Jesus by this line drawing we do. And of course, not intentionally, yeah. but when, once you draw the line, then it focuses on that line and it's that's where we put our identity. But you if we stuck there. If we seek to, you know, throw away our markers and stop drawing lines and rather look at which direction are we heading, mm. then when I'm gonna ask which direction are we heading, well where are we looking at? We're looking at Jesus where our identity and our security is. So it's one thing to say, oh my identity is in Jesus. Yeah. But I think this rather than drawing lines, if we work directionally, it actually helps us mm. rest our identity in Jesus. That's awesome. Mark, thank you so much for your work and your encouragement for us today. You're welcome, Brittany. Great to be with you and with Prodigal. Absolutely. If you are interested in learning more about this and more about his books, you can purchase them online at his websites below. Thank you so much, church. Big reputation, big reputation. Oh, you and me, we got big reputations. Ah, and you heard about me. Oh, I got a reputation. <laughs> Christians are the worst. The condemnation of culture, a lack of care for the poor. Judgmental bigoted, homophobic, elitist, and hypocrite. That's what the world thinks of Christians. We've shown a lot of graphs throughout this series. Statistics and graphs that show declining church attendance and we tried to take a good hard look in the mirror about the reasons why people are leaving. And out of all the graphs, out of all the surveys, thousands of people, the one outlier of all the questions. There was one question, Christian, atheist, didn't matter, where 90% of the people surveyed answered yes. Do you know what question it is? Do you pray? Isn't that interesting? Don't go to church, wouldn't call myself a Christian. Do you pray? Yes, I do. Okay. I think that's astounding. I think it unites us. I think that there's this internal longing for something more, that we can't do it alone, that there must be something more out there. Is the church doing a good job of representing 
that longing. The 2004 movie, The Village, was directed by M. Night Shyamalan, who's famous for these mind-blowing twists at the end of his films. It depicts a community of 19th century villagers who are afraid of the monsters surrounding the woods. Something terrible is out there, and the only safe place is the town. Uh, kids aren't allowed to go beyond a certain distance. Uh, sometimes they put an animal out in the forest um, to kind of appease the monsters, and sometimes the people would even get a glimpse of the monsters in the woods. Now, spoiler alert, okay? It's all fake. There's nothing out in the woods. It's actually a community of adults who left the outside world to create their own secluded society. They invent the myth of the monsters to keep their kids from entering the real world. They even dress up as the monsters so the kids would believe the lie. And it's not 19th century. No, it's present day. Bam. Blew your mind, okay? Sometimes I think the church today is operating under similar mindset as the adults in the village, okay? They're so afraid of the world that they set up these rules, these lines, these boundaries in order to safeguard the worldview. But what the movie shows us is that in order to protect people, the parents themselves had to become the monsters. They had to become that which would keep their people in, keep them in fear. And perhaps that's why so many people use the word escaping when they talk about leaving the church. So often in the church, we have been told about the monsters outside of our walls. And then when we venture outside of the gates and when we encounter all the people that we've always been told we're so bad, we're so evil, so sinful, we view them with suspicion or we keep them at a distance lest we be corrupted ourselves. Or they become a project. Someone that we can eventually convince to leave their terrible life of sin and join the community where it's safe and they can become just like us. People can smell it a mile away if you see them as a project, not a person. People are not projects. And when we live our lives thinking that everyone outside of our church walls are monsters, then we become the monsters. This is not the way of Jesus. For the past few weeks, we have been looking at hypocrisy of the church, self-righteousness of the church, and today, we'll explore the judgmentalism of the church. And with judgmentalism, we as a church have got a big, big reputation. reputation. Now, if you were to take an online survey or ask random strangers who are not Christians, what is the first word you think of when you hear the word Christian? It will not take you very long to hear the word judgmental. So often when people think of Christian, they think of churchgoers and preachers who kind of condemn unchurched people for their sexual habits and preferences, lifestyle choices, and even political views. I doubt that this is what Jesus had in mind when he gave his life in love for the entire world. One of the early Christians was a man named Paul, and he writes this to some Christians in a town called Philippi. Okay? Be humble, 
thinking of others as better than yourselves. How can we even begin to do what Paul indicates here regarding everyone and their opinions superior to your own? The problem is, is that I often legitimately think that my opinions are better than everyone else's. If your opinion was better, then I would have it. This is the cure for judgmentalism. And now at this point, I'm sure you are saying, yes, I agree. And you're thinking, yeah, that's true. Okay, Christians are sometimes judgmental. We gotta stop that judgmental thing. But that might be missing the point. The point is not that Christians are judgmental. The point is, I'm judgmental. The point is, you're judgmental. And in judgment, is the antithesis of love. See, love is ascribing unsurpassable worth on others at the cost of self. Okay, that's what God does on Calvary. That's what we're supposed to do as well. God, love is ascribing unsurpassable worth to others at the cost of self. But in judgment, we're doing the opposite. Judgment is ascribing worth to yourself at the cost of others. Every judgmental thought is taking worth from them and ascribing it to yourself. Because it's like, well, at least I'm not like them. And we feed off the contrast. Jesus shows us a better way. You know what Jesus never did? He never once stood inside of the church walls and condemned all of the terrible sinners of the world. Jesus is the only one who is qualified to judge in the history of humanity. He is the only one to walk this earth, live a perfect life, okay? He's the boss, he's the judge. And when he has the opportunity to condemn sinners of the world, to condemn the sinners of the Roman Empire who were all around him, he doesn't. In fact, his most harsh words of judgment and condemnation were not to the people outside the church walls, they were to the religious people inside the church walls. His most harsh rebukes were never for sinners, but for the ones who were judging all the sinners. All of those bad people, all of the bad sinners, tax collectors, drunks, adulterers, they weren't put off by him, they were drawn to him. People will never believe that you love them if they don't feel like you like them. It's pretty simple. And Jesus doesn't just love you, he likes you. And sometimes that's more powerful, okay? I love my wife. We've been married for 17 years. She is the mother of my children. Of course I love her. But I also like her. I want to be around her. She's funny, okay? She's fun to be around. I think she's cool. I like my wife. I love my kids, of course. They're my kids, of course I love them, but I also like them, okay? They make me smile, they make me laugh. Like, if they weren't my kids, I'd wanna to go to their house and play. Uh, play games, watch movies, play catch, go on bike rides. I love them because of who I am, and I like them because of who they are. I love them because of who I am, okay? Sarah's husband, Dex and Ivy's dad. I like them because of who they are. Just awesome, fun, amazing people. 
Jesus does the same. He loves you. He also likes you. And that drove the religious leaders of his time crazy. They simply just didn't have any categories for a man who could have beautiful relationships with worldly sinners. So the religious leaders tried to do whatever they could to kind of pin down Jesus, to get him to choose a side, to start living by their categories of us versus them. And Jesus would have none of it. John chapter 8. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the older until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Are we more like those with the stones or are we more like Jesus, advocating on behalf of a sinner caught red-handed? Very few people get judged into life change, okay? Far more get loved into it. These people, they drop their stones when Jesus helped them see the flaws in themselves rather than focusing on the flaws of other people. Now, we may not have physical stones that we throw at people who do things wrong, okay? That would be weird. But we still throw stones in other ways, often more subtle ways. Throughout our marriage, my wife and I have watched this epic reality TV show called The Bachelor. In every season, these beautiful men and women walk out of the limo that very first night, and I immediately start judging them hard. You might be thinking, that's messed up. You don't even know them. But as the season goes on, I feel like I do know them. I've seen their personalities. I've seen their interviews. I've seen how they interact in a completely normal situation where 25 people in the same house are all dating the same person. And because I've seen them interact with people a handful of times, I do know them. I know them inside and out. I'm qualified to judge them. Oh, that one? Yeah, yeah, she's not marriage material. She's not here for the right reasons. That one, she's the crazy one, okay? Cuckoo. This is a shameful act that I'm not proud of. But a couple seasons ago, there was a girl who had only one arm. And as soon as she gets out of the limo, I make some joke about how it probably cost her an arm and a leg to get on the show. Now, I didn't hurt anyone. 
they'll never know. They're on TV, I'm in my house. But just because they can't hear you doesn't mean you're not throwing stones. You are. If we judge people on TV, we'll judge people in reality. We've got to drop our stones because the children's song is wrong. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Words hurt worse. We have to develop this habit, this instinct to love the people all around us and to choose to think positively about those around us. F.B. Meyer said, when we see a brother or sister in sin, there are two things we do not know. First, we do not know how hard he or she tried not to sin. And second, we do not know the power of the forces that assailed him or her. We also don't know what we would have done in the same circumstances. As we read this story from John 8, the woman caught in adultery, there was a certain question that likely arose in your mind about it. Put simply, what did Jesus write in the sand? Whatever it was, this and his comments caused the Pharisees and the religious leaders to drop their stones and walk away. Jesus always moves us to drop our stones, never to pick them up. If you are watching Christian television, if you are watch, listening to Christian radio or going to a Christian church and you are being encouraged to pick up stones to condemn sinners, that's not Jesus. Jesus always moves us to drop the stones, not to pick them up. So what did Jesus write? Okay, here's the answer. Here's the answer that we've been searching for for 2,000 years. The answer is, we don't know. There are many theories. Some think that he was quoting some Old Testament verses, okay? Uh, beating them at their own game. Or he was writing out the sins of the accusers and one by one they began leaving. Some think that he was just simply doodling, okay? Treating their accusations with the contempt that they deserved. We don't know what he wrote. But there are only three times in the entire Bible where God writes Three. First, we have Exodus, okay, the Ten Commandments. God's first word, he writes, is law. Uh, the second occasion is found in Daniel chapter 5 when God writes on the wall uh, a judgment on a pagan king. God's second word that he writes is judgment. First law, then judgment. And the final occasion of God writing is found here in John chapter 8. And whatever it was that he wrote, it caused a woman who broke the law, who stood condemned by her accusers to leave a life of sin while the accusers walked away. The first word was law. The second word was judgment. The third word shatters the judgment of the righteous on a woman who broke the law. This is grace. Yes, there is law in the Bible. Yes, there is judgment in the Bible. But law and judgment are not the last word. Grace is. J.M. Boyce writes, A Christian may know that he has been truly made alive by Christ, 
when he finds himself beginning to love and actually loving those others for whom Christ died. We'll finish this big reputation sermon series with uh, one story of a Christian, a Christ follower, a positive example. We're in the middle of our spring small group sesh. And it has been great being a part of a small group and not leading it. The group that Sarah and I are a part of is called Loving Our Religious Neighbors. And the group is led by Dr. Darren Dirksen, who happens to be a professor at Fresno Pacific University and also an amazing volunteer here at Prodigal Church. Part of Darren's role at Fresno Pacific is to teach about world religions. And he has built great relationships with lots of faith leaders of other traditions. The first week of our small group, we met at a coffee house and we learned about the religion of Islam, okay, Muslims. And then this past Monday night, Darren took us to an Islamic mosque here in town. There we were welcomed by their imam, their leader, and probably 20 local Muslims. They prepared dinner for us and it was a beautiful time of asking questions and learning from one another. And, and we asked lots of questions, and they asked lots of questions. There were no debates. There was no arguing. There was learning. There was listening. And near the end of our time, one Muslim woman raised her hand and asked Dr. Darren Dirksen a question. She said, this is the third time that I have seen you come to the mosque and interact with Christians and Muslims. And every time I see you, you have this glow. This, this glow about you. Now, without saying it's because of Jesus, can you tell me why you have this glow? I was blown away. Not once in leading students or members of his own church to a Muslim mosque was Darren confrontational or argumentative or trying to convert anyone. He listened. He learned, he loved, and he glowed. God, I pray that that would be true for us. May we shine wherever we are, in our office, in our city, in our homes. God, may our big reputation be about loving you and loving others. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Proud of the Church Fresno. Next week, we start a brand new four-week series called Her, and we are focusing in on women of faith, power, courage from the scriptures, and it's going to be incredible. We can't wait. We hope you have an amazing week. Grace and peace in the Middle East.